Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to introduce our guest co-host for this week. And as you know, if you've been rocking it with me, I always like to share the full bio. Yes, I do. I read the full bio. Sometimes my guests are, are probably cringing in their seats when I read their full bio, but I always share it's important to me because people work hard to get where they are, right? And I think it's so important for our community to be aware of the credentials, the accolades, the experiences that shapes the way in which our co-hosts will show up to a conversation and their perspective. And so today will be no different. Dr. Sierra Scott is a licensed psychologist and DEI practitioner with nearly 15 years of professional experience in the realms of mental health care, higher education, outpatient hospital settings, and the public sector. She is the CEO and founder of Recalibrate to Liberate LLC, a consulting business that offers trainings, workshops, healing spaces, and wellness retreats, all at the intersections of social justice, mental health, and emotional wellness. Dr. Scott has also co-authored and published two book chapters. One book chapter explored the impact of sexual assault with women of color on college campuses. The other book chapter highlighted holistic care modalities for the treatment of psychological problems in medical settings for older adults. Dr. Scott earned her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Georgia, Dr. Scott is also a graduate of Cornell's University's Diversity and Inclusion Certificate Program. Dr. Scott intentionally embodies the awareness and skills that she learned through Stanford University's Cultivating Compassion Training Program, as hosted by the Vanderbilt University Cal Turner Program for Moral Leadership. As a Black and queer social justice advocate and mental health professional, Dr. Scott has proudly completed several LGBTQ plus safe zone allyship train the trainer programs to better equip herself and to champion for the safety and wellness of people across the spectrum of gender identities and sexual orientations. Her diversity and inclusion certificate from Cornell University um, is one that she's really proud of. And she invites you to visit her website, which is recalibrate2liberate.com. We'll drop that into the chat to find out more about her and how maybe her organization can support your DEI and inclusive wellness efforts. And so as I now stop sharing my screen and bring myself and Dr. Scott into full view for this community, I want you to go to the chat, go to the comments, but please find any kind of words of affirmation or appreciation. We always like to make sure that our guest co-hosts feel um, really welcomed because we are grateful for their time. And Dr. Sierra, today is no different. We're just very I'm appreciative for you being available and willing to share with our community today. And so one of the first things that we always ask our guest co-hosts to do before we delve into conversation is to share with us something about yourself that we would not know from reading your bio, which I just shared, or even maybe from visiting your LinkedIn profile. So welcome this audience in your own way, sharing in whatever you know comfort level you have about something different about yourself. Welcome. Thank you so very much again for creating space for me to join today and for that warm introduction. It's really an honor and a privilege to be here. I think if I were to introduce myself in a way that, that isn't reflected in my resume or CV or LinkedIn, um, I think the concept of identifying as a warrior and a healer um, is what resonates best with me. Um, I was listening to a song that really has become a mantra for me. Um, and a warrior in that I identify as a social justice warrior, a warrior for peace, a warrior for healing, a, war a warrior for um, community. Um, and that requires action. Uh, so when I think of the word warrior, that requires action. It requires boldness, courage. Um, and warrior also has cultural implications for me as a as someone who identifies as having African and indigenous heritage. And so coupling that also with the idea of me being a healer. So yes, I've gone to school for uh, tons of years and I do identify as a licensed psychologist, um, but healer in that 
balancing with that masculine warrior energy, that feminine energy of healer that I can show up just as equitably um, and, and softly, you know, air quotes around that when it comes to creating a holding space for those who have experienced harm or trauma, whether it's in their individual personal lives, in the workplace, their relationships. Um, and so if I were to continue to unfold how I identify and how I feel I, I embody space, particularly um, given my visible and invisible identities, which I'm happy to share more about later. That would be how I further introduce myself, a warrior and a healer. And for those who resonate with that, there's a song. Um, the artist's name is Geminelle, G-E-M-I-N-E-L-L-E. -E -L -L -E. um, that really is like my pump up song when I'm needing to enter spaces and honoring that both of those identities can coexist. I don't have to choose one versus the other. No, you don't. They absolutely can coexist. So I love defining, you know, ourselves as, as a warrior, which is, you know, there's, there's obviously lots of connotation associated with that when we think about warrior strength, but then the same token as you have expressed Dr. Sierra also saying I'm a healer. And that's a little bit of the softer side, right? Mm -hmm. And I do love the fact that, especially as women of color, we can get to a place where we're much more comfortable talking about holding the balance between the two, right? Being a strong warrior, but also yeah. being this soft individual that can um, that can rest, that can know that we also need support, that can be vulnerable, mm -hmm. and that can mm -hmm. just through maybe our presence um, to provide a level of healing for others. And so I love, absolutely love all of that. So I want to jump right in. I want you to tell us a little bit about your DEI journey. I want to understand what inspired you to start your business. Um, again, the name of it is Recalibrate to Liberate. And um, so what was that experience like? Yes, thank you so much for that question. So for me, um, I would say that my personal identities and my professional and identity development across the years as someone who is very connected to um, my Black identity, my identity as um, having Muscogee Creek heritage, my identity as a member of the LGBTQ community, I identify as queer, and just what that was like growing up in the Deep South. I was born and raised in Georgia, um, and also coupling that with my deep spirituality. Um, and so embodying all of those elements of who I am just as a human, and then how that has impacted how I move in professional spaces, um, particularly when I have for most of my career been either the only person of color and or one of a few. Um, and then when we intersect that with my other identities, particularly around um, uh, identifying as queer, I uh, began to have like personal experiences, but then also supporting other colleagues, particularly colleagues with systemically marginalized identities of when they're experiencing micro and or macroaggressions in the workplace, experiences of tokenism and how that intersects with uh, white supremacy culture in the workplace. And this going back, um, I would say at really 15 years, like I've been, you know, in the professional settings for 15 years, and then knowing the power of not only having the language to describe those experiences when they're happening to you. But then also I wanted to, because um, psychology, uh, being a psychologist very much can focus on that one-on-one -on -one intervention, sure. Um, but I'm really also very passionate about community engagement and systemic level changes. Mm. And so as I was reflecting on um, those siloed in, uh, areas of impact and change I have been able to make within like my own personal organizations, whether it was chairing like our diversity committees yeah. or pushing forward um, community engagement um, efforts that were going to increase access to, particularly in mental health care, increasing access to mental health care for systemically marginalized folks and or often being called upon to foster those healing spaces in-house in the organizations I was working. I, on a deeply spiritual level, again, wanted to make change systemically, community-wide, and call it Pollyanna, but honestly, like, the world. <laughs> yeah. um, that is, that is truly my hope. That, that, yeah. that is my desire. <laughs> and so that is where my business idea, I really meditated on, and I knew I wanted to be a consulting firm, and knew it would couple um, 
one of my other identities as an educator, I'm also, I'm looking at my mom here on the screen, I also come from a family of educators, um, deep, deep lineage of educators, and so that it's a part of who I am. And so while I knew Recalibrate to Liberate would absolutely um, be a space for trainings and workshops, I also wanted to couple it again with that healer side of being yeah. able to create soft spaces, psychologically safe spaces um, for systemically marginalized folks in groups, workshops, retreats, um, whether it's after a critical incident or just, you know, what it means to be particularly a black or brown body in the workplace. And so I had the idea for a while, but I had to meditate deeply <laughs> around the name. Um, and that name came to me. And so, yeah, so it was about a five-year process of like working through what it meant for me as a black queer professional who it gets projected as younger than maybe I really am um, to come forward and form the LLC. But that if I formalized it in December of 2021, and it's been quite a beautiful journey since then. Nice, 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 nice. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And I, the name resonates with me, Recalibrate to Liberate. And I think that it's um, obviously very intentionally um, connected to how you want to show up in this space to be able to help support others. Mm -hmm. um, it is very liberating to be able to have soft spaces where we can land. And I don't think that we talk enough about that. I mean, it has just in recent years become more of a discussion because we're finding that particularly for Black women, we have to always, again, show up as that warrior. But there are times where we need to be able to just be, to be vulnerable, to be transparent, to not have the, you know, the, the answers and to not have someone to see us as, well, you're resilient, you can do it. Yes, we know right. that, but right now I need a soft space to land. <laughs> and that's so important. So I am yes. I am grateful for the work that you're doing and how you are encouraging others to really lean into that a bit more because we don't do that nearly enough. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how you center um, systemic change in your work, because you've you've talked about that a couple of times that you've referenced it in this conversation. And so your company, Recalibrate to Liberate, you co-create these psychologically safe spaces for systemically marginalized communities. Why is this important to you? I mean, obviously, I know that your own intersectionality is something that probably finds its way into why this is important to you, but I want you to go a little bit deeper on that. And how do you define Dr. Scott, success as it relates to being a co-conspirator? Wonderful questions, and thank you so much for the invitation to go deeper into the name. And so for me, I guess I'll, I'll anchor first in my business name. So Recalibrate to Liberate, I part of create co-creating, because I, and I use that language intentionally to um, dismantle how white supremacy shows up around like, I I, yes, I can be an expert, air quotes, around DEI, mental health, and things of that nature, okay. but folks are the expert of their own experience. And so I really want to be uh, joining alongside folks and in, in, in their recalibration. And recalibrating for me means, one, and I, this is where I feel like my um, mental health background comes in, is being able to create individual and group spaces where folks can unlearn um, folks can unlearn how they have been um, impacted by white supremacy and other types of unconscious and or very much extra, explicit and conscious biases. Yes. Thank um, you. you know, sometimes you're very much aware, but because Absolutely. we've, all been, we've been shaped and formed, those reactions are still knee jerks. Um, but being able to re recalibrate first by building self-awareness around what have I been taught what um, have I learned from either my families of origin, society at large? Um, what are the areas of privilege that I have? And, and including myself, that yes, there are other there are intersecting identities where I do experience harm. But it's also like I have a PhD, I have a terminal degree. I have been able to operate in certain spaces with a, uh, with light skin privilege. I know maybe we can talk about that later um, and what that yes. means in the workplace. And so Re, again, building self-awareness. And then once you have the awareness, um, why it's important to me is that until we do have that awareness, we're operating um, in ways that are very harmful. And I would also argue violent. Um, they're violent, um, particularly towards, um, I'm very passionate about black and brown folks having to operate um, in predominantly white spaces um, because the way in which it can be so implicit, especially a micro or a macro aggression, it, it happens and it's, um, I've seen, there's a video of like mosquito bites, 
it occurs, but you don't realize until maybe minutes later, hours later, maybe days later, like, oh, wait, that actually hurt me. And then you're stuck with the emotional residue, the psychological harm. And so it's, this work is important to me so that one, Black and brown folks, particularly when we're thinking about the U.S. context, and we've had 400 plus years of generational trauma of uh, racialized violence. But then also I call in white co-conspirators and allies and advocates that you too have been harmed and traumatized by the systems of racism in particular and other forms of repression. Um, and I do come from a space of you all need healing in two and you need to recalibrate too because we've all yeah, been socialized yeah. by these forms of oppression. Um, and so that's why it's important to me. It goes beyond myself, but really from a, a space of um, operating from empathy and compassion and care um, that all of us are worth, believing that all of us are worthy and deserving of being able to show up in the ways that not only, and I do call my creator God, so not only being able to show up in the ways that God created us to be, which includes all those intersections, but also when we experience psychological, psychologically safe spaces, we're able to truly embody and manifest into our calling in its mm -hmm. fullest, in its fullest way, not with hiding ourselves or diminishing ourselves or, yeah. so I could go on and on about why this is important to me, but that is, those would be my primary reasons. So people can embody yeah. their, their full selves and thereby be able to embody their full calling. Yeah, no, that was, that was beautifully stated. As I was listening, I couldn't help but to take notice of some of the, the language and the words that you were using as you were describing really the harm that can take place. You know, I heard you use violence. I heard you use trauma. And what I appreciate about that, I know sometimes it can feel quite jarring when we are using such, um, you know, language to describe circumstances that maybe not everybody can identify with. But I think when we don't do that, we dilute really the severity of the circumstances. And so I am a fan of, of people really, really going there with the language that is very fitting for, for, for the situation. So thank you for that. I also appreciate, Dr. Scott, your recognition of no matter who we are, what race, what ethnicity, we all need to heal from it because I think that it helps connect to the point that it has impacted, negatively impacted all of us, right? You know, yes. and um, and I do believe that that healing, if that can occur across every individual, it better positions us to do our part at the individual level to help try to dismantle the white supremacy culture. Because yeah, we all uphold it. You know, um, even as practitioners, you mentioned sometimes yeah. that we fall into it. I mean, that's a, that's a normal everyday thing, just because we've been so conditioned to it. And so I appreciate when we can peel back all the layers and really get to the root cause of why is this continuing to show forth in our society? And this is why. It's because we all need to be on a path of really trying to dismantle it. And it sounds like a lot of it begins with the recognition and the healing from it, right? So great points that you made. I want to talk about your role and your experience, of course, as a licensed psychologist in doing this work. So can you share a bit more about the intersectionality of mental health and DEI and how, again, your experience as a psychologist allows you to maybe be even more effective than someone that doesn't have that training when you're coaching and working with different individuals and organizations? Thank you for, again, that question. So. I feel um, that the ways in which my background as a licensed psychologist lends itself well to this work, particularly when it comes to healing, recalibration, and um, co-creating psychologically safe spaces, is my awareness and understanding about the ways that um, identity-based trauma and harm in the workplace lives in our bodies from a somatic experience as well as uh, emotional and psychological experience. Yeah. And so, and I am, like, like you said, Dr. Nika, I am intentionally using the language of trauma because mm -hmm. if we, um, and what, you know what, I'll personalize it here for a moment. When I think about, you know, times where um, a microaggression has happened in a workplace, I, it's a very somatic experience for me. I'm feeling it in my gut. Um, I'm getting really hot. I'm feeling tingly everywhere. I'm tensing up my, these hips and this lower back, I, those are my signals of, uh-oh, <laughs> that, really, that really has impacted me. And so as I'm saying that, I invite everyone here to reflect on when you 
because it's like a shockwave of an earthquake, yeah. you know, so that there's the moment of impact, but then there's the ripples. That's how I think about how trauma, especially in the workplace, can occur. And so I feel like my mental health background can help one validate and normalize that because I think we have been taught, particularly from westernized and Eurocentric medicine, that the mind and body are separate. When in fact, uh, indigenous uh, heritage teaches us that they are very much co uh, they are very yeah. much connected. And so I think that's number one is being able to help folks give the language to the somatic physical experiences they're having in response to the workplace trauma. And then from an emotional space, thinking about um, I feel as though I'm able to, again, give language to people around experience of hypervigilance they may be having in the workplace after, let's say, an incident has occurred, especially folks with marginalized identities, you may feel mistrustful of certain spaces. Yeah. You may you may be um, self-isolating as a form of self-protection. You may um, uh, be coming in, doing your job, if that's not already your motive, you know, your way of operating, come in, do your job and leave. You don't want to socially connect, again, perhaps up from a space of self-protection. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could go on and on, but there are, are these ways in which the, the psychological impact, because I, again, I don't feel like we give it language of, oh, that's why I'm showing up this way. I'm in self-protection mode. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't have an attitude just because I'm not isolating myself just because no, this place, this workplace doesn't feel safe. So I'm doing what I need to on a human basic level to take care of myself. Um, and so as a psychologist, one being able to get the language and then being able to work, whether it's with employee, you know, affinity groups or working with the leaders um, and directors of these organizations around how is your leadership style? either reinforcing that this is a safe space or reinforcing that it's not a safe space. How do staff meetings run? How are those run? Are those shared? Or is it very much top down? Um, when someone calls in an oops or an ouch, I know we use that language in the DEI. You know, when someone calls in an oops or an ouch, how is that, what is that met with? Is it met with defensiveness? So people learn, oh no, this actually isn't a safe space for right. me to challenge things or, um, is there space again for the challenging where people can co-learn together? Um, Cause that eases tension in the workplace and helps people feel like they can really lean in and, and it, it signals psychological safety. Um, so that's how I feel. Um, again, just my understanding and awareness of those concepts, but then thereby then being able to create the individual and group interventions to create the, the safe spaces in the workplace and also spaces for healing in the workplace. Yeah, what's coming up for me, Dr. Scott, is how powerful and empowering it can be to have language around what we're experiencing in order to be able to get the support we need and to heal, right, from those trauma experiences. And so what I love about how you have talked about the intersection of your training as a licensed psychologist is that that is one of, that's a way to kind of fill in the missing gaps. Because how many times do you and I, as we are just in the, the midst of this work, we encounter people that are holding what they have experienced and not talking about it because they really don't know, is this just me? Or did this really happen in the way that I, I sense it happened? Why am I feeling this way? And, and I think that part of the healing process is being able to first and foremost validate that what people experience really is their experience, right? I mean, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of value in um, recognizing that folks are the expert of their own experiences. Sometimes yes. we try to be the expert of someone else's experiences. Right. And it's like, no, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> are we doing? And so I so appreciate yes. um how in which you've talked about that and the somatic experience. And again, I just think this, so it enriches, I believe, the ability for someone to engage in a more meaningful way when we can connect it to what is um, psychologically happening within our bodies and why that exists. I want to talk now. Go ahead. You have a point that you want to make. I want to get you yeah. jump in. No, don't be sorry at all. Go for it. I'm also um, just a quick comment as well around the siloing that happens when workplace harm yeah. occurs. Yeah. I would argue um, that that is precisely what white supremacy is meant to do. It is yeah. meant, it, and when I say, I use the word trauma intentionally, that when something occurs, it's very easy for us, 
and I'll center it in black and brown folks for right now to gaslight ourselves, to minimize our own experience, to out of either for the system to create feelings of guilt or shame within us when things happen, when actually it's like, oh, no, 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 these the systems are the ones that should be feeling ashamed of themselves. Right, right. not um, me, not the right, victim not, here, right? Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, but it can be so easy for that to be the internalized experience so that when it is siloed, mm-hmm. if I'm not going to talk to my colleague about what happened or I'm not going to HR or whomever to report it, those inst- those experiences can keep happening and occurring over and over and so I know there's that saying of like oh no the system is operating exactly as it was supposed to and I would agree but when we and it operates (laughs) that way when we are siloed and so that is one of the other reasons I'm very passionate about this work is that if I can come in and hold that privilege of external consultant you know sometimes I get this I get to say the thing that other people don't feel safe to say or I get to speak up about the experiences that other folks have been having because out of fear of their job having their job taken or fear of retaliation um but I just wanted to speak to again that siloed experience of like that's how racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, all these isms can continue to thrive when we're not talking about it. And so that's why co-creating psychologically safe spaces where people can talk about it in community and thereby heal in community is something I'm, that's where that warrior comes in, that that warrior side comes out for me. So yes, thank you for letting me take some space to expand there. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you interjected that additional, that additional feedback. Um, so when we think about wellness, which again is is part of how you center your work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes the conversation of work-life balance, you know, can enter into the equation because um, it certainly has implications to one's ability to be living a life of wellness, right? If we can't balance that appropriately. And so I want to talk about work-life balance and, um, you know, work-life or life-work harmony, because I know mm-hmm. that the language is kind of shifting. I often say um, work-life blend, because mm-hmm. I, I I believe that, um, you know, we all are going to find ourselves imbalanced. And so we have to really just consider the fact that there are going to be times where we will need to blend. And what does that look like, right? And so anyway, I want to get your perspective on, as you are coaching around wellness and you are um, sharing thoughts and perspectives to really balance what can really be disruptive to our lives when we feel like we are in balance from work and home. How, what does that look like when you're having those conversations? I love the um, framing that you offer of work-life blend. Uh, I'm going to coin that, trademark that, Dr. Mika. Well, I'm appreciating the shift of language between work-life balance versus work-life um, harmony and or blend. Mm-hmm. Because, yep. you know, when we think about work-life balance, um, I'm like, it's leaper season, those scales, <laughs> you know, when we think about <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it can feel very dichotomous of either I am like 100% like, killing it with my self-care versus I it's completely in the trash or it also doesn't make space for multiple domains I feel when we're thinking balance it's just either one versus the other versus uh, work-life harmony I first invite people um, because I think it can get overlooked particularly as working professionals in grind culture um, Mm -hmm. to forget those like the the lower level of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs like Food, shelter, I'll throw in hydration in there. Um, do you have, um, are you just psychologically safe and sound in your in your physical needs? Um, and then from there, we have, there's so many other pieces of our lives where there's relationships and other forms of social connection, um, spirituality, faith, and that's important to you. We've got, um, you know, other forms of, I mean, financial uh uh, wellness and self-care. Um, and then there's just, there's so many domains. And I like also the term of harmony because that, if you think of like a hundred percent self-care, those domains can shift in percentages from day to day. And sometimes I could argue hour to hour, like second to second, you know, sometimes second to second, literally. And so while I like the framing of balance versus, or uh, I like the framing of harmony versus balance is it gives ourselves permission that what we're needing can change 
from day to day. Yeah. For example, like um, I am an avid like um, journaler and I Zumba and things of that nature, but there's some seasons of life where I may lean more so into one form of self-care versus the other, and that's okay. Um, and so when I when I'm using those principles of flexibility, adaptability, and also that's a form of showing ourselves self-compassion when we are being in tune with our personal needs and we're giving ourselves permission to attend to those personal needs from a not rigid way, but flexible and kind way. Um, so that definitely shows up, of course, like in my individual work with um, individual therapy clients, but also in group settings as well. Um, and then also helping organizations learn that the ways in which they're co-creating well-being in the workplace, um, I'll try to stay away from shoulds, but it could benefit from also being as equally flexible and responsive in that your the workplace community, their needs around wellness and self-care can also change. Um, and so that, I don't know, the pizza party, I see those memes. So maybe that pizza party is what people wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know, five years ago, but maybe nowadays they're just wanting time to be in with, with each other socially and in community. Um, right. Or maybe it's the massage, if, if again, if you have it in the budget, maybe it's the chair massages you bring in, or maybe it's people just need dedicated breaks throughout their day and they yes. know it's protected. They know it's protected. Um, yes. But again, flexibility, adaptability, and being responsive. And that's how we can show ourselves compassion individually. And then how compassion can really uh, make yeah. its way into our organizations. No, I so appreciate that. I want to stay here for a second on mm -hmm. this um, work-life balance, blend or harmony, because um, it reminds me of uh, a post that one of my my friends, who's actually a Black woman, and she is a founder, and, um, and, and she basically went to social media and she shared, if I'm honest, I suck at work-life balance. It always feels like people tell you that you should learn to rest after they have already made it. Like, is hustle necessary to get to the rest? Or are we all just running so hard because we are trying to outrun failure? I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? And it was really interesting to me, the variety of responses that um, found its way to, to her post. So now this is conversation that's happening. But I resonated with that because I often say that we have seasons, right? And uh, when I think about being an entrepreneur, being a founder, which is her situation as well, it's your situation as well, you know, sometimes it can feel like um, this work-life blend or harmony is not even in reach if you are this driven, ambitious individual looking to try to create something. And then it's like, once you reach that point, whatever that really looks and feels like, are you even healthy enough to really enjoy right. it? Are you even rolling over the finish line? Yes. And I just thought that was such a fair question and discussion. Yes. And so anyway, as we were talking about work-life balance, blend and harmony, I wanted to bring that to the conversation. I would just love, Dr. Sierra, for you to share your thoughts on that real question. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you so much again for your reflections and it's sparking up the thoughts around, I had to write it down, outrunning failure. And how, for me, that drums up the concepts of perfectionism. Yeah, um, it does. You're right. Yeah. Particularly, and you know, I'm, I'm always trying to be authentic. Like for me, definitely, I describe myself as a recovering perfectionist, meaning that it is in progress every day, especially as a high achieving person. Like I was in the international baccalaureate program in high school. So like it's, it's been entrenched in my yeah. spirit for a very long time, that right. high achieving spirit. And I also don't want to damper that side of myself of like, it right. is my work ethic and my, um, uh, openness to creating. Like, I feel like that is why I'm here is to help uh, is to join folks in co-creating things. Um, that also, though, means I have to give myself permission for things to be undone. And my goodness, oh, that is something. I, I like things to be tied up really pretty with bows on top. Um, and however, what I learned, because um, I have, I'm not even going to say approach burnout. I've definitely been burnt out before in my career, is it was because of the feeling of everything has to be done. And what I have learned in maybe an existential way, but also a very personal way, is that life is about the journey. 
And that includes entrepreneurial life <laughs> and, and or, you know, in our nine to fives, that life is about the journey. And so give, when we give ourselves permission, it's not to say there aren't ever deadlines to me, of, of course, um, but in, in your prioritization list, does everything, everything right. on your to-do list have to happen today? Yeah. I'm willing to bet that the answer is no. And if you, I want to normalize those feelings of I should have, would have, could have, or that self-deprecation that may occur if I, you know, why can't I, da, 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 because you're a human and not a machine. Um, for those who have not read, um, uh, it's called Rest is Resistance. And oh my gosh, I'm blanking on her name right now. Wow. The name of the book is Rest is Resistance. Yes. If someone can find it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know the book that you're talking about. Yeah. My goodness. Um, but I'm reading that one of her quotes is, you know, we are, we are divine beings. We are not machines. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we are not machines. We are human beings. And as a result, we are imperfect. And that means that things will be left undone. But when we are operating from a capitalist society, which I know some social justice advocates would argue that a capitalist society is a white supremacist society rooted in slavery, <laughs> just because of the 24 hour work grind, that if my pausing and giving myself permission to rest, I know at least for me and my African ancestors, that is the dismantling. Yeah, oppressive systems that's right. um, yeah and it's a way in which we again just give myself permission to pause and rest is also a way to um work more on that blend that work life blend that work life right. harmony um so thank you for that those are my musings <laughs> really in response no, and to that loving question. your musings and they are speaking directly to me I don't, I don't know about this audience but I can just tell you you're speaking directly to me I, I placed into the chat give yourself permission to be okay with things being undone and that is that is powerful. It's so simple, but yet very powerful because I am one of those individuals to where if there are a lot of things on my to-do list and I can't stretch them off, I'm like, oh, it is like anxiety inducing, right? And so um I I need to work through that. And I, I appreciate you kind of naming that for for myself and maybe some others in this community as well. And you're right. I think that we treat each other like we're machines. I mean, even think about the language, like in the workplace, human resources. Right. I mean, oh. Where are we placing really the emphasis on the human portion or on the resources portion? That gets back to that. We are yes. machines, right? And so there's there's certainly some merit maybe into reimagining how in which we're even talking about talent in the workplace. Um, Venetia is one of our guests today, and she actually shared into the, um, the chat. Yes, Dr. Scott, I can definitely relate. I have worked hard, though, on being more intentional and taking care of me and just letting go of what didn't get achieved for that day. Thank you for sharing as I truly have been there and experienced feeling burnout. And so your message is really resonating with folks. We did find the Rest Resistance um, book that was referenced earlier. And so there's a link into the chat. I hope you all will take advantage of that. I want to shift now and let you know that um, while I know I've been um, kind of, you know, really hogging Dr. Scott for myself with my questions, I do want to give you an opportunity as our community here to present any questions um, to Dr. Scott or even contribute to the conversation in whatever way that feels um, appropriate for you. You can do so if you're part of our Zoom community by using the raise hand feature that lets me know that you're willing to be added to the spotlight and I will invite you to unmute yourself and share or you can continue just to place into the chat if you're joining us LinkedIn Live, then you have some questions. If you want to go to the comment section, my team is watching that and we'll bring it over into our Zoom community. So I'm going to ask one more question while people are percolating around maybe perhaps what curiosities are coming up and questions or contributions they want to make. Um, and so just to give you time to do that, vicarious trauma, we've talked about language and words, right? So vicarious trauma is a widespread, Dr. Scott, but rarely talked about phenomenon. I want you to explain what this is and let us know why this can be really harmful if there aren't interventions for the practitioner experiencing this. So vicarious trauma is, um, are, includes those emotional, psychological, uh, residue, uh, the, the impact of a traumatic experience in, we'll say, we'll center in the workplace, um, whether that is, let's say, there's been an experience of grief and loss, or let's say there's been a death in the workplace, let's say there's been a micro or macro aggression in the workplace, or just an overt form of oppressive um, policy making in the workplace. Um, if there's um, I know for uh, I'm here based in Nashville, like the Covenant school shooting, like that was, you know, be supporting 
clients and colleagues, some of which had personal connections to that shooting, um, holding those stories. And so if I had to streamline it into what vicarious trauma is when you are a practitioner and you are hearing those stories and or depending on your own salient cultural identities, you are also personally impacted by those incidents, then you're left behind your um, those emotional side effects or what you're left behind with, whether it's um, hypervigilance, meaning like on feeling on edge, really constantly watching for your safety. Um, if your sleep is disrupted, your eating patterns are disrupted. Um, nightmares some, and flashbacks sometimes can occur. Just a feeling of weightiness. I know um, vicarious trauma and, and burnout symptoms can also look uh, very similar to depression symptoms when it comes to low mood. <laughs> low mood, low energy. And I, and I do want to hear, use my voice as well to speaking to how suicidality, suicidal thoughts can be um, one of those effects or uh, related to vicarious trauma because of just the overwhelming sense of somatic experience of, of vicarious trauma and or the hearing of the psychological impact. And so why it's so important, particularly as practitioners, and I'll say DEI practitioners, when you're going into spaces, you are hearing about some of the most painful experiences that folks have had. And again, depending on your own personal identities, you can't help but feel that in a heart space and on a soul space. And so when you're leaving those places, I, or actually when, while you're there, I encourage folks, um, you know, if you don't, then that's when it can manifest in medical medical issues, heart disease, um, these other forms of cancer, mental health, anxiety, depression, um, suicidality. Um, if we're not attending to ourselves when we are entering spaces and experiencing vicarious trauma because we're hearing the stories. Um, and so I ask people, how are you grounding DEI practitioners? How are you grounding yourself while you're there? You, you don't just leave yourself outside the door when you walk into these spaces. So is it, you know, grounding through your body? Is it, you know, you've got something that you hold to stay, you know, present? Um, yeah. are, are you somewhat maintaining eye contact, hydrating, drinking your water, doing deep breathing? And then what's your self-care plan every single time you exit a space where you have either you were witness to or, um, Again, you heard about these traumatic experiences in the workplace because that's what makes this work, work sustainable. If you are not taking care of yourself and attending to those, the impact of vicarious trauma in your body, your mind, and your spirit, this work is not sustainable. And we really need you, myself included. <laughs> we, yes. we really need, we need everybody here um, doing this work. Such an important point. And I think that a lot of people perceive that maybe practitioners in this space are immune to all of the negativity that can come because maybe we're just, we have these superpowers that allow us to not feel the way others feel. And when we think about the fact that so many practitioners in this space are part of marginalized communities, this type of conversation is so critically important. Um, I do leverage like the hydration. I also leverage like the deep breathing. You know, sometimes audience members will, you know, I'll say, take a deep breath in, a deep breath out, notice the sensations in your body. And what they don't realize is that this is just as much for me as it's for you. But that's so important. That is so important. So thank you for, for amplifying that. Um, there is a question into the, um, the chat right now that I want to present to you. And this is coming from Michael. He says, peace, what's the best way to deal with a supervisor that has experienced vicarious trauma? Oftentimes, there are supervisors that ignore the DEI component and treat subordinates horribly. What would you recommend for that? What would you say, Dr. Scott? Taking the question in and I'm acknowledging I'm going to respond in the way I'm interpreting it. So I just want to put that caveat out there. I... Um, so for me, I'm thinking about times in which I have worked for someone who had experienced vicarious trauma in the workplace and had not had opportunity to heal that for themselves. I'm thinking about the ways in which it manifests, whether it's defensiveness, uh, lack of personal accountability, because taking accountability for their own flaws may feel unsafe. Um, sometimes folks who have experienced, especially identity-based trauma in the workplace, again, if it hasn't been healed. I, I I do anchor things in slavery just because the U.S. context of like we're we're trying to seek control in the ways in which we can, and so that's where my licensed psychologist brain comes in. Of it is a normal human behavior to seek control when things can feel like they are out of control, which vicarious trauma can make us feel again if it has not been healed, and so it draws me to um, 
thinking about when you are on the receiving end of that, I first and foremost invite you, again, I think that's why language is important to be able to name like, oh, this is what's happening here. Because especially in a supervisory relationship where the power differential is present, yeah. it can be easy to internalize and personalize somebody else's behavior. So that'd be my first part of being able to at least tell yourself, like, this isn't about me. This is about this other person. Um, depending uh, in, in, in a ideally safe uh, supervisor relationship, which obviously doesn't feel like it might be present in this question from Michael, um, but ideally you would be able to bring forward your observations and, and, and I do invite folks to use I statements. Again, that's where my psych psychologist brain, hey, wow. when, you, when you say XYZ supervisor, these are the ways it makes me feel and grounded in, in a concrete example. When you said blank, because mm -hmm. usually if mm -hmm. we're giving it, if we're giving ambiguous feedback, we can get even more defensive. Um, and then of course, like worst case scenario, I know, unfortunately, like sometimes that may require taking that steps, higher levels of action when it comes to reporting, um, reporting harmful supervisory experiences. Um, and so I do go back to the individual experience of the person on the receiving end of how can you take care of yourself in a way that you're not personalizing someone else's manifest, how, how their vicarious trauma is manifesting. Um, and then if you feel safe broaching that conversation with the supervisor around how they're, um, about how they're showing up as impacting you, but if you do not, um, and if there are other avenues by which to take action of reporting, um, feeling that you can avail yourself so that was additional support. Um, again, that's my answer without having the full context of the situation. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you, Michael, for your question. Um, I love the fact that you brought up the the importance of specificity when you're giving feedback. You know, I, I think your statement was when it's ambiguous, it does cause people to become more defensive. And so that's a really good practical um, takeaway that I think this audience certainly um, can gain some value from. So I don't see any hands raised, but if you have some questions, you know, send them, send them my way. I, I do want to now address a topic that I think is really critically important. You know, many of our listeners are advocates for the LGBTQ community. And I want to understand, Dr. Scott, from your vantage point, how can uh, leaders and, and champions of uh, and allies of the LGBTQ community um, that are not, how can they ensure that they are not unintentionally adding more trauma to that community? I think in hearing the question, I... Um, one is thoughtful questions. I'm grateful for all the questions that have been asked. I would invite folks to give themselves permission of like, you You might not be able to ensure, like there's a lot of pressure yeah. on that. You might yeah. not be able to ensure psychological safety when it comes to LGBTQ identified folks, when it comes to getting everything perfect. You know, mm -hmm. so for example, I'm thinking about pronouns. I would say that when we use language of preferred pronouns versus these are just folks' pronouns, that can signal to an LGBTQ identified person of like, oh, well, maybe it's minimized because I just prefer these. Like, no, I just prefer chocolate over vanilla. <laughs> that, that's what I prefer. Yes. But because of the uh, saliency of language if someone is saying, here are my pronouns, I do invite folks to um, use them. But also, again, with that ensuring piece, you may make a mistake in mis in mis uh, pronoun someone or misgender them is to make that up to apologize and then also not um, centering yourself in that apology. Like, please, yeah. please do not wax poetic for 10, 15 minutes about how terrible you feel, because <laughs> then that's just making the other person hold the emotional burden of taking care of you. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Um, so I wanted to ground it in an example of like what it can look like. So honoring folks' pronouns, but also if if you um, make a mistake, not centering yourself in that apology, but do take ownership over the mistake that you have made. I would also say when you're thinking about policies and procedures in the workplace, um, how are folks, if they are partnered, how are their partners included in those activities? Is it safe for people to bring their partners to community building activities in the workplace? Um, when you are, and, I, and I'm using the word partner um, um, directly. So I will say for myself as a queer identified person, it, I very um, 
often may, um, people may make an assumption about the gender identity of my current partner. Um, and, you know, without um, knowing my current uh, circumstances. And so using uh, gender neutral terms when you're approaching someone for the first time around um, perhaps their relationship status, if when that's appropriate <laughs> in the workplace is another way in which you can, it's an invitation for LGBTQ folks to know like, okay, I can breathe here. I can show bringing my fullness here, this is already, people are already aware um, around this. And I, and then I can, as a uh, LGBTQ person, bring those parts to, um, bring myself in, those parts of myself into the workplace. Because um, there's those cues, those signals. Um, so trying to think how else. Um, and then when it comes to um, so identity-based trauma, I know absolutely we're focusing like um, black and brown folks, but also, my current state is uh, there's a lot of anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans um, legislation. So keeping wow. abreast, keeping abreast of those policies and procedures um, and, and how that is creating uh, unsafe environments for LGBTQ folks, depending on your state where you live, um, and, and making sure that those things are included in the conversations when we're talking about identity-based trauma, and especially if you're talking about the intersection um, of wow. race, sexual orientation, gender identity, spirituality and so on and so forth. So those are just some things that immediately come to yeah. my mind. Yeah, some, some really good practical um, tips there. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, if anyone in this community desires to connect with um, others that are part of this podcast community beyond this hour of time that we share on Fridays, feel free to drop your LinkedIn information into the chat. We also have shared Dr. Scott's LinkedIn information and um, hope that you will um, connect with her and um, really gain value from a lot of the great content that she shares out there. Um, we are soon going to be running out of time, but I do want to ask about um, this, this healing work that you're doing. Um, as someone who works in the healing space, Dr. Sierra, um, you know, it's a tough question, but is your work ever done? You know, I'm really curious about how do you take time to rejuvenate um, after some of those challenging sessions and conversations that you've been exposed to? In short, no, the work is not done, especially um, hearkening back to earlier. I do identify with DEI work and my work as a mental health provider as my callings. And so I'll be doing this until my last breath. As such, I I, um, I create intentional space for, for rest. And especially when I am operating in the um, as a DEI practitioner, when depending on the level of readiness in an organization, just the own, my own trauma of uh, experiencing defensiveness from leaders in the yeah. organization, right. or maybe even microaggressions as I'm doing this work um, is critical to me. And so beyond those, like I said, those um, basic <laughs> uh, physical needs, I am a huge advocate of um, the NAP ministry is for sure. I love to yeah. read. I have loved to read since I uh, was a child. And so I'm a huge advocate of reading. Yes, books related to my profession, but also not. <laughs> related uh, to my work. I love uh, food, both cooking and eating. So try new recipes. Um, give me anything spicy and I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, I am, a, uh, I do meditate uh, pretty much daily as a part of my daily morning practice, as well as journaling and being with spirit. Um, and so those are the ways I refuel myself. Again, for me, my faith is is very important. Um, and knowing that I'm not alone, one, from a spiritual perspective and also from a community perspective, nurturing. I've got wow. plans plans for dinner with the friends tonight, um, making sure I'm staying connected and doing things that are going to nourish me so I can keep going. So. Yeah, we need you to keep going. The world needs you. We need all that you have to offer. Thank you so Thank much you. for just gracing us with your presence, with your insight, with your intellect, with your wisdom. I mean, I am just so grateful that you said yes to the invitation. I know that this podcast community also really appreciates um, having shared this space and time with you, Dr. Sierra. And I want to thank our audience as well. If this has been of value to you, then I hope that you will share it out with someone else. The replay, of course, will be um, available relatively soon. And then don't forget that we also will make the audio of this podcast available in a podcast capacity. And so um, have a safe weekend. We thank you all for joining us today. Bye-bye.